is a play that's obsessed with time. The word time is is used maybe 40 times in the text. Yes. And it starts with a when, and time marking things are in almost every speech and soliloquy. That mm-hmm. and, and it's about the obsession with what's going to happen after you die. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, the classic Scottish play gets a dark new life in director Joel Cohen's drama, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Based on the timeless work by William Shakespeare, the film reweaves the tale of the power-hungry Thane of Cawdor, who sets his sights on the Scottish throne after receiving a prophecy from three witches and must deal with the aftermath of his treachery. In addition to The Tragedy of Macbeth, Mr. Cohen's extensive directorial credits include the feature films Intolerable Cruelty, O Brother, Where Art Thou?, The Big Lebowski, and the DGA Award-nominated Fargo. Alongside his brother Ethan, Mr. Cohen also directed the features The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Inside Lewin Davis, True Grit, and the DGA Award-winning No Country for Old Men. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Cohen shares insight into the making of The Tragedy of Macbeth with fellow director Guillermo del Toro. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Very happy to be here. Yes, so am I. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I would love to start by is... uh, Asking, I mean, there's there's a formidable thing, which is there's a small line <laughs> between your first movie and this, from Blood Simple to Macbeth. Yeah, there's ultimately a noir. I mean, this could be uh, the postman always rings twice, but instead of a diner, they're getting a kingdom. Did you feel that element? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would say in two respects, I think you're right that. Um, it did occur to me, having seen productions of this over the years, that it's extraordinary how Shakespeare prefigures these tropes of uh, American 20th century pulp fiction, you know, the, the couple plotting the murder. And that being in Blood Simple is a direct line, but it was also, you know, he was introducing horror movie elements too. I mean, they're the witches, and, 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 and Blood Simple in a way started out as being a sort of horror movie thriller hybrid in some sort of a way. So it it was appealing just from a genre point of view, or it was comfortable. It's more, a better way of putting it, I think, in terms of thinking about it. By the same token, the beauty of this is how it's a departure. It's a departure in some visual aspects, the exploration, uh, the boundaries between what's theatrical and what is then extends into a larger world is really intriguing. And, and I wanted to ask you, number one, the exploration of this, did it have any origin in theater or in stage when you and Bruno started exploring it? Well, it did in, in two respects, actually. It's, 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 you know, it's, my thinking about it started when Fran was thinking about doing a stage production, which she ultimately did a number of years ago. And she asked me to direct it on stage, and I was not um, 
eager to do that basically because I felt like I really wouldn't know what to do with it in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I might if I started thinking about it as a movie. So that that was one aspect of it. The other aspect was the fact that I was asked around the same time to uh, do an opera in Europe. And I, I toyed with that idea a little bit. I was... I told the people who were producing the opera that my problem with opera was that they're usually overlit. And uh, <laughs> if I was going to do it, I, would, I wanted to work with my own lighting designer who wasn't from theater, namely Bruno Del Bonnell, who shot this movie. And so Bruno and I got together and we, we thought about this particular opera for a while. And I ended up not doing it for various reasons. But I think some of the thinking that we developed or the ideas that we were thinking about somehow found their way into this movie. It's very interesting to me. The, uh, there are several aspects that I would like to discuss from my directorial set of decisions. Uh, the visual part, the, how you, play, you use the black and white is not, is not and, and the format, you know, for the compositions, you use it uh, in an almost graphic Ways almost like an engraving to the point where the last frames of the movie for me are almost an M.C. Escher, uh, the the three the air, land, and sea, water, air, and with the crows breaking in the white and the. Uh, but this uh, something you did, I mean, and the mirroring, there's and the illusion, which is like the dagger floating and is the door's handle. The movie is plagued with two things that are thematically and visually aligned in a beautiful way. Illusion, mirroring, and things that, like the the witches occupy the water and the air at the same time in the reflection. Are these things that that you uh, worked on consciously or is me reading crazy Mexican? uh, (laughs) Um, Well, always that, Guillermo. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, thinking back on it, I mean, there is a strange confluence of two things, and they seem to be mutually exclusive, which is one ambition of the project was not to lose sight of the playness of it, the fact that this is a play, it's a piece of dramatic literature written for the stage. And that what the one thing I knew right off the bat was that I wasn't interested in a realistic, you know, rent a castle version, go ride horses out on the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, That I wanted people to be, the audience to be always in watching the movie aware that this was a theatrical experience in that sort of capital T sense. On the other hand, so much of, what cinema lets you do and were, were solutions to sort of dramatic problems mm-hmm. in terms of how they're presented in the film mm-hmm. were derived extremely, extremely derived from photographic sort of thinking and sources, you know? So for instance, the idea that the dagger at the end of the hallway is this floating door handle Mm -hmm. really came from thinking about a Steichen photograph of J.P. Morgan Mm -hmm. sitting in a chair and his hand is here on the, on the arm of the chair, but the way it's lit, it's 
the curve of the chair and the way the light is hitting it makes it look like he's holding a knife, right? <laughs> so that's a very famous Steichen photograph. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, can we do something? It's a photographic effect. Can we do something like that on the stage that has a dramatic sort of payoff in that respect? So, you know, it's this combination of theater and theater ideas and photographic ideas. There is, however, and I, I understand you're a theatrical with a capital T, but there is a, a, a many aspects in the visual uh, that, that are pure cinema also. And, uh, you know, they're Dreyer-esque or they, they, they almost, uh, the, the, the idea to confine everything indoors of the castle so it becomes... It's suffocating and trapping, and and the format choosing the format that is not uh, you know, that is of the period. I mean, you you would be very much at home there. When you when you did you study any of the all like well, Dreyer actually was a big sort of influence on this because mm-hmm. if you look at you know Passion of Joan of Arc or, and kind of crazy because. That's a movie which is essentially done in close-ups where he built this entire castle. Yes. Essentially, the set was the whole damn thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but so beautiful in terms of its uh, stripping away anything that's not essential to the frame and the story, you know, in any given frame. And that was, you know, something derived somewhat from looking at Dreyer, but it's also... Again, a, th- a theater idea that, you know, this is, if you've got a bedroom, a bedchamber, you say, what, what do you need in terms of set dressing? You need one bed. You yes. need one table. You know, you, if it's a banquet scene, you need a table. If it's, it, so that these things are, they're just, they're, they're indications as opposed to sort of furniture. And the, and the aspect of, um, the aspect of the visual, uh, appearance or disappearance of the witches this uh, this also has that very graphic quality where you always uh, they just started thinking uh about about them as uh, illusions as theatrical illusions cinematic yeah as as started thinking about them as sort of theatrical illusions and thinking about how would they be you know introduced on a stage and I mean, but <laughs> the way in which it's purely theatrical is that a starting place with this whole project, in addition to Fran and Denzel, was Catherine Hunter, who I've known yeah. for 30 years yes. and is not really known as a movie actor. She's a sort of legendary in England stage mm-hmm. actor mm-hmm. and um, has such a remarkable um, ability to uh, shape shift and transform physically. Her physicality is kind of, you know, off the chart um, in terms of its startling nature. And uh, and I've been wanting to do something with her for years. I actually saw her uh, 30 odd years ago in a Durenmatt play called The Visit. And she was playing a, an 80 year old woman and I hadn't, I didn't know her. I was watching the play and I thought, was thinking, where did they find this remarkable 80-year-old actress? And then I, you know, met her after the play and she's 27 years old oh at the time God. or something. Yeah. So Catherine doing that 
and you know, it was at the earliest, one of the earliest ideas is mm-hmm. Catherine has to play all three of the witches and, mm-hmm. and what's that going to look like and what's that going to be. It was also interesting because it was one of, when she did that scene on the beach, mm-hmm. it was one of those very rare moments in making movies where everybody on the set, all the grips, all the electrics, all the, the, the you know, she starts doing what she does and they kind of put their stuff down then they gather around the monitor. Then they went as close to the action <laughs> as they could and sat down on the edge of the set and she did her thing. And then, you know, there was like a standing ovation. Yes. It was purely pure theater, you know, what she was doing and all in her body. I, I, the, the other aspect that I think is uh, fascinating, I, I often say, Uh, when people praise an English actor for how easily they adapt to the American accent, I always think, yeah, but it's rare for them to own the space mm-hmm. like an American. Mm-hmm. They, they, they stay a lot more in their lane, yeah. you know, physically. And what I love about this is you have the force, and when we're talking about the noir of it all, the force of the two main characters is purely American. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it has the language and the, yeah. and the meter, but... Their energy is American. Yeah, I agree. There is, you know, combining so many different, we had actors from all over. We had them from, you know, South African, English, Irish, American, all those accents also. And when we were rehearsing before we started, I was thinking, well, maybe we should bring these all into alignment. So <laughs> never what does to say. Um, And I listened to it. So everybody sort of tried to do that and listened to it the next day and went, no, it's, uh, it's going to be fine. Everybody just talk like you talk. Do it, approach it. And a lot of different approaches to Shakespeare, too, it approaches to the meter. But you're right. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different thing the way Denzel, his approach to the meter as opposed to Franz, as opposed to somebody like Alex Hassel, who plays Ross and has a long sort of, background in Shakespeare mm-hmm. and it's a very very um, different way of thinking about the verse um, but they all you know seem to meet somewhere in the middle there's also for me uh, is the two plays I've always found fascinating is this and Lear for some reason and and I, I either I read heard or at some point I I became, the notion entered my head that the age of the characters was always cast younger, but that in some notion, older fit the plot beautifully. First of all, because their relationship, the symbiosis they have, is not a symbiosis of a young couple. It's the symbiosis of, and the complicity and the unwavering energy between them is of an older couple and the childlessness et cetera, et cetera, it becomes more interesting. Are these notions you discuss with, with them or, is, or again, am I Mexicanizing No, everything? no, that was very, very much there from the beginning. I mean, this, first of all, I mean, it was, I was undertaking the play. It was a given that Fran was going to play Lady Macbeth. She was, you know, the age that she is. And so it was ipso facto about an older couple. But mm-hmm. um, casting those, those parts as older, for, first of all, interesting to me because 
it's one of the only good marriages in Shakespeare. They happen to be plotting a murder, but it's a very good marriage. Um, <laughs> the the, the, um, the and that, that was interesting. Yeah. And, and, and as, just as you say, that the marriage has history and it's fraught. This, this childlessness that's a sort of at the center of the play is one thing when Lady Macbeth is very young and another when she's postmenopausal. I mean, there, there isn't going to be an heir from her, mm-hmm. you know, and that what that does in terms of the dynamic of the story and the ambition and the motivation. So all of that was interesting also. And, you know, and the, the, the third way I think that it was it's interesting to think about, was interesting to think about the story that way, is that this is a, it's a play that's obsessed with time. Time, the word time is, is used maybe 40 times in the text. Yes. And it starts with a when, and time marking things are in almost every speech and soliloquy that, mm-hmm. and, and it's about being, in, in the obsession with what's going to happen after, you die because Macbeth is obsessed not with himself being king after he becomes king, but whether his heirs will be king, you know, Mm -hmm. that's all such a fraught and interesting part of the play. And I think very consciously on the part of the playwright and, and therefore the, the time, the length of the marriage, that aspect of it, the older characters also is another way of, of, of thinking about the, the play. Uh, and that part of the play. There is also, I mean, uh, there is also a force, uh, like uh, once themselves has this gravity and, and this this weight as an actor, and, and then when he has to move and be brutal, very swiftly, very efficiently, without almost without adornment but great precision, it's really quite a wonder to see. Him handling the text and the gravity of the characters, and then when he has to be deadly, you understand how he won all those battles, even in something as simple as the, or simple rather, the assassination of Duncan, and and he uh, he brings um, they both bring this notion of um, very very uh, efficient thinking, and then when she goes crazy, she goes crazy in a in a very almost uh, poetic way. Did, did their work together, did their work together, uh, this is the first time they have been on something. Was it, how much complicit were they? And and how much did that, uh, is, is that frightening to a director, even if he's married? Yeah. Where you see this these two characters, these two actors taking these characters. Um, well, I was <laughs> Yeah, that was it was an interesting and evolving dynamic because I think uh um you know we we rehearsed just the three of us. We started out way way long before pre-production just getting in a room and reading the play and talking about it and uh and you know you could see this shifting dynamic of Denzel thinking, well, they're married or you know is it going to be the two of them and me or and and <laughs> And Fran and, and me thinking, well, they're both the actors, and it's going to be the two of them and me. <laughs> and, and Fran thinking, well, they're two guys, and I'm a woman. Is it going to be the two of them and me? You know, you can see that kind of moving around the room um, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. And then, but 
Yeah. And also just the fact that this is not quite what you were asking about, but it relates to it is they're both actors who, you know, you associate with being able to, that have that kind of movie star thing, you know, that thing, that, that ineffable thing, that transaction with the camera, that actors who work in the movies and you don't even know why or how it works so well, but they're also both stage actors and have been working on stage since the beginning. The very first time I saw Denzel, we're almost exactly the same age was 40 years ago. I'm in a, I go to a play in New York called the soldiers play the Negro Ensemble Theater Company, and this guy comes on, and he's a, and I'm going, who is that? And it was Denzel, right? You know, on stage. So my first impression of him as an actor it's was as a stage actor. You know, again, this kind of hybrid thing that we were doing, which was a, a play but a movie, it just seemed like that was a unbeatable sort of combination. Now you have your collaborators that you have had for years, but there is an interesting uh, gradation and use of both visual and audio, audio auditory elements that is not, uh, that, that shows you transforming or seeking new directions. For me, um, the camera is, is contemplative, but also oppressive, moves slowly, is, is, is not the roaming Camera, it has a, a, a different weight. Uh, do you want to talk a little about that and then we'll talk a little about the, the sound and the music? Um, yeah, sure. I, I, you know, you mentioned the format before. And while we were always sort of from the beginning, we knew we were going to shoot it in black and white. It wasn't so clear at the beginning and, and for quite a while whether or not we wanted to shoot it in a 185 format or in, a, um, you know, in the Academy format. But in thinking about it, and as it got closer to our having to make a decision about it, it was really, it was thinking about close-ups in that format, mm -hmm. which have, you know, close-ups have an enormous power in that format. I agree. You're, and, you're, and, and the other thing is you're shooting the center of the lens, right? So there's no distortion in the image. Yeah. They have this, you know, it's, and... There's huge and, verticals also in your composition. And also, huge exactly, verticals. so so much of the design was about staircases and hallways that we thought, well, this just seems to be asking for that, you know, to shoot it in that mm -hmm. compositional format. And, uh, yeah, so that was kind of part of the design from the, from the, 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 the black and white part was just sort of moving towards, you know, going away from realism and towards abstraction. So that was just a given in a way early on, mm -hmm. but the format came later. In the, in the, in the music and sound design, you have Skip and, and uh, but, you know, it's one of the most beautiful uh, sound design works I've seen this year. And it's minute and it is not theatrical. It is very expansive. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the, your approach to sound design and this? Well, you know, I think the approach to sound design was the same in a way as the approach to the photography and to a certain extent, even like what I was talking before about like set dressing, which was instead of complicating, instead take just a few spare things and see how they work together. So 
you know, when we were doing what's going to be the background, we, we used a lot of painted backdrops and then did visual effects within the painted yeah, backdrops. But we wanted those effects to feel like scrims, like theatrical scrims. Yes. And the idea was there's an idea of a castle. There's the atmosphere in a mountain. It's almost like sort of a Japanese painting. Don't put everything in there. Don't make it look like a Disney thing. Make it look like a, a haiku in a way. Uh-huh. And so the same thing with the rooms. It's, it's a bed and a curtain and something else. And same thing with the sound design. It's, it's, it's one sound effect, one element that gives you an idea of the room, mm-hmm. right? And perhaps one other thing that's telling the story, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the bell, uh, the, the bell going or the, the, you know, the knocking, the dripping, those types of things. Um, but it was like kind of paring stuff away and letting a few things tell the whole, tell the whole story. There is, uh, and, and both the sound design and the music have an almost funereal, uh, it's like a dirge or like there's a, There's a, a weight to them and a rhythm to them that is perfectly blended. And this is not a Carter, uh, the usual Carter Burwell uh, track. So do you want to talk about a little bit about working with him? Yeah. Um, we weren't sure how much or if any music should be in the movie at all at first, both Carter and I. We were in thinking about it. But unlike... No Country for Old Men, which kind of has no music per se. Um, this has sequences in it which almost, in a strange way, it's like it, it just, it needs music. If you're doing a certain kind of parallel editing yes. and you want to do, you want to tie that sequence together, the best way to do it is with score. You know, so it's, it, it, we knew that it needed to have score. Um, and, and we didn't really know what it should be, honestly. And then Carter did a few things. And one sketch he did was this kind of very bent fiddle, you know, this violin figure, right? Which to me sounded um, exotic and foreign, but impossible to put your finger on from where. <laughs> and it had that kind of feeling of, you know, that feeling of it entering a different world and being somewhat exotic, but it wasn't Scottish. It wasn't, you know, exactly. It wasn't, you, it was very hard to sort of pin down where it was from and it had the right sort of feeling to it. And that's what we sort of ended up expanding. You know, it, when um, I think that the exercise you're doing here, the, the everything is so exquisitely, you said haiku is, is minimalistic, but incredibly precise. Normally, in the parlance, I say silence is 10, sound, 10 tracks in the mixing board. Yeah. It's never that easy. And when you pare it down, yeah. everything has to flow, yeah. which leads me back to what you said in the beginning. You couldn't deny the theatricality, the, 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 the language itself. The only other way to approach it is the Polanski way, which is mud, yeah. blood, gods, drool, Uh, ferocity everywhere, yeah. everything is in movement. And uh, and at the end of the day, the, the, the language is articulating one reality. You went for the opposite, you said, yeah. almost gave a pentameter yeah. audiovisual. Yeah. I, you know, I love the Polanski adaptation, but 
there, I really do. But there, there is a sense in which, right, this is the opposite of that yes. in every way. It's the older, you know, I even, I found on, on, I was watching at one point, I saw an old interview with Polanski where he was asking about casting and he was like, oh, they always cast old people in that part. I want them to be young. And I went, they do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he was, he, all of his thinking was kind of the other, it was the dirty barnyard version yes. of the movie in a way. You yes. know? Um, and it was f- kind of fantastic. Uh, but I, it, 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 I was kind of going the, uh, running in the opposite direction. It is, it is one of the, it's a really fast play. Yeah. In the sense that everything, once the, you set up the first actions, yeah. everything goes really fast. Yeah. And, uh, you, and everything occurs with illusion. And, and I think, uh, the more crime and more delusion happens between them and the more they accelerate into a really yeah. almost a suicidal energy, they, they can deal with it. And, and in that, uh, I wanted to ask you in planning it, there is a rhythm to the images. The, the, the the way you do the the forest sequence, which is gorgeous, and his theatricality and cinema the same way, and then you deploy him these resources of movement and action, like Denzel at the end when he has that beautiful terrorist fight, that also is going with the rhythm. Were you aware of the like? The, did you well, start yeah, very okay? Yeah, no, absolutely interesting because. There was so much talk all the way through and so much thinking about rhythm because there is rhythm, of course, in the verse. It's iambic pentameter. And that's sort of the melody, you know, that that you want that to be. That's another thing about the sound design. You want that to be up here, right? And and everything else. You don't want anything competing with that or, Mm -hmm. you know. But again, the rhythm of... And there's rhythm constantly mentioned in the play itself. Whence is that knocking? From the very beginning, right? So there's the knocking, there's the dripping of the blood. There's in the scene where, where uh, Macbeth walks down the hallway to murder Duncan. He sees the dagger at the end of the hallway. We took out all of the production footsteps and then cut it in a way that his footsteps were like a metronome yes. in syncopation with the verse, with mm-hmm. the rhythm verse, right? So that that's also a rhythm. And even Bruno was obsessed with this idea of the lighting being like rhythm, you know, mm-hmm. that you would, that, that there were there were repeating things that were rhythmic things, the, the arcade in that, which we were looking at like De Chirico and, you know, all of the, all of the arches have the same hard line mm-hmm. as opposed to it. So he lit it because if you light that with one fixture, that'll the, the, the shadows will get softer as the image recedes. So he is, a, so he and the, using, the drips, the drips is a rhythm and the drips are a rhythm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a big, that was definitely an element in terms of how we were thinking about it. It, it. it feels, and even the last image is it, the fastest images at the end. Uh, and one of the things I adore of the movie, and it's an observation, but I want to, is the, the, this haiku approach, audio and visual approach, 
It's so beautiful because it's showing you at the end of the day, all they get is an empty space. Yeah. You know, the, 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 there is no pageantry yeah. to, to, the, to, to their win. Yeah. It's a hollow victory. Yeah. They get the same faults yeah. that were there before. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's almost like the Trump administration. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very funny, but yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> well, with that, we are signaled and we wish you all good night. Thank you for coming to this magnificent movie. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 